0: Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. For many years now, Japan has been one of the leading players in global capitalism. With the world's third largest economy and some of its most renowned manufacturing firms, Japan is one of the few countries to have bridged the infamous gap between the West and the rest. But alongside the development of capitalism in Japan, A powerful socialist tradition has also taken shape in Japanese political and intellectual life. Our guest today is Gavin Walker. Gavin teaches history at McGill University in Canada and he's the author of The Sublime Perversion of Capital, Marxist Theory and the Politics of History in Modern Japan. He's also the editor of a new collection of essays on the legacy of 1968 in Japan, The Red Years. You've written about the importance of Marxism in Japan both as political movement with more than one organisational form and as an intellectual tradition. You've also noted the fact that it hasn't received the same attention as Marxist political organisations and theoretical work in countries where European languages are spoken, perhaps for obvious reasons. Before going into the story of Japanese Marxism and socialism in detail, could you perhaps give a bird's eye view of its most striking features for someone who's maybe not familiar with Japanese politics or intellectual life?
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely. I would say a couple of things uh, to begin with. One is uh, one of the most remarkable things about the history of, of Marxism in Japan is, I would say, its distinction from the history of Marxism, particularly in Europe, where the Marxist tradition really emanated most heavily from the side of political movements. It came from the first Working Men's International, it came from the dominance of the Second International in Central Europe. It came from then the dominance of the Third International uh, after the, the victory of the October Revolution. But in Japan, the history of Marxism came principally from the side of the university. And I think that that actually conditioned very heavily both uh, the nature of Marxist theoretical work in Japan, but also gave it its particularly kind of high-level theoretical character uh, in the sense that Marxism was received first in Japan, not principally, although also this element was there, not principally as the ideological backbone of political organization, but as the sort of front curve of development of the cutting edge of the social sciences. So in this sense, Marxism was really Uh, something that from the very beginning was given an almost principally theoretical character in Japan. Some of the other kind of effects of that that have been, I think, important for the development of Japanese Marxism are, on the one hand, its dominance in the university, a situation that, frankly speaking, we can't really point to anywhere in uh, Europe or, or North America in the sense of being the main trend of social scientific and certainly historical research. Whereas in Japan, through, I would say, even the end of the 1980s and uh, the sort of events of of 1989, 1991, uh, Marxism remained, I would say, probably the dominant methodological orientation in the university and in even intellectual life as a whole. Even those who were sort of anti-Marxist or more uh, oriented towards uh, traditions of liberalism and so forth had a grounding in Marxist theory that would be surprising in not everywhere in Europe. Certainly in France, there was was a dominance of Marxism in the post-war period as well. But certainly in Europe and North America, this widespread influence of Marxism in a advanced capitalist society was unusual and has roots in this highly intellectual background uh, to Marxism in Japan. That, in turn, led to a very methodological character of Marxism in Japan. And a lot of work, for instance, on uh, the mega project, the marxist gesantos in German, uh, took place uh, in Japan. So I think that this the striking feature of Japan of Japanese Marxism is sort of its extremely high level of theoretical work and not only sort of political analysis.
0: Now, Japan itself appears to be highly significant for Marxist theory as a case study because it was the first and perhaps still the only country from outside the Euro-American cultural matrix to have become a highly developed industrial capitalist state. By any benchmark you might care to mention, whether it's social and industrial structure, GDP per capita, median wage rates, etc. Now, that might be explained by reference to the external geopolitical context, where Japan was one of the few countries in Africa or in Asia to escape European colonial rule so that its leaders could imitate the leading capitalist states of their day without being subordinated to their control. It could also be explained, on the other hand, by reference to Japan's own pre-capitalist social and political structures, perhaps lending themselves to capitalist development in a particular way. What explanations have Japanese Marxists themselves tended to favor?
1: Well, I think this is probably the most significant question for the early history of Marxist theory in Japan, was to clarify how Japanese capitalism had developed, how it had sort of sprung up on the basis of what existed before, and also to explain The peculiar trajectory of Japanese capitalism, which was both like Germany, for instance, and Russia, a late developing capitalist state in the sense that the sort of feudal structure lasted for a very long time in comparison to France or to the United Kingdom. But one thing that distinguished Japan in particular was that compressed into a small space of roughly 50 years. From 1868 and the Meiji Restoration, which broke the feudal power of the previous uh, Tokugawa uh, shogunal government and established the route towards a modern state in Japan, from 1868 to 1930s, thereabouts, uh, therefore roughly 50 years, 60 years, Japan passed through both, uh, we could say, the stages of being a dominated or peripheral country with a a late transition from feudalism to an extraordinarily rapidly industrializing country in particularly the 1880s and 1890s, when an enormous investment of the state in munitions manufacturing, in heavy industry, etc., prompted a very significant turn in the formation of modern Japan, which was the turn to imperialism. It can't be forgotten that the Japanese state remains in the early 20th century the only major non-Western imperialist power which held an extraordinarily large empire at its height in the 1940s, stretching from the South Pacific all the way through Manchuria and uh, so forth into Northeast Asia, an extraordinarily large uh, space of hegemony. And this trajectory is a very I should say, unique one in the world in the sense that the Japanese empire existed a mere 30 to 40 years after Japan had formed a kind of national state at all. So this kind of trajectory, so to speak, was extremely important for Marxists to explain. It bore very little similarity on the face of it to the story of the development of English capitalism told in Marx's Capital. Although, of course, Marx's Capital famously reminded its German readers that uh, they should not uh, be confused by the idea that it was a book solely about England, but uh, rather, Marx's famous quote from Horace, it is of you that the story is told to the general reader. This is the story of the development of a a sort of cross-section of an ideal average of a capitalist society. And this Marxists in Japan took as a kind of spur for their work to think about how Japanese capitalism had developed from out of the existing situation. This resulted in a really wide ranging debate on the origins of capitalism, one that emphasized from different directions, both on the one hand that the Meiji Restoration had been a bourgeois democratic revolution that broke the feudal power and set Japan on the trajectory towards uh, becoming a quote-unquote normal capitalist state. Others took the position that in fact Japanese capitalism and its extreme inequality, for instance, in the 1890s and 1900s, Japan, despite being a capitalist power, had a labor wage rate less than that of, of India at the time, which was of course a dominated colonial, uh, colonized state, I should say. so. There was another perspective that also took the position that Japanese capitalism was overwhelmed from the very beginning with feudal remnants, both at the level of mentality, but also at the level of social structures and at the level of ideology in particular, concretized no more so importantly than in the existence of the emperor system itself, which, of course, was at the center of Japanese capitalism. Uh, The emperor, it has to be remembered, was marginalized under late feudalism in Japan. And significantly in 1868, when the modern Japanese state was formed, what this was referred to as was a restoration, not a revolution, the restoration of the emperor to the center of society. So how to explain this kind of doubled anachronism or this sense of both bringing into into life a modern state founded on property relations, founded on the sanctity of private property, founded on a modern Prussian-style constitution, yet one that also brought back into its core this imperial institution, overwhelmed as it was with mysticism and so forth. This was a key contradiction for Japanese Marxists to explain, and I would say it remains a key contradiction that Japanese Marxists profoundly disagree about. So in, in a sense, the two explanations were, were put forward and that debate between them constituted the motor force of the development of Marxist theory in Japan.
0: We're now going to hear a clip from an American documentary series, The Pacific Century. The US historian Chalmers Johnson describes how the leaders of Japan steered through the modernization of its state and economy in the late 19th century without allowing genuine democracy or popular power.
2: Without doubt, the most important of these these government leaders, Ito Hirobumi, entrusts himself, he wrote his own orders and put the emperor's seals on them, to write a constitution. He buys off the opposition by promising them that within a decade there will be an assembly of elected representatives the people ito's problem then is to give them what he's promised but to give away as little as he possibly can above all not to give them genuine democracy by this time ito has discovered his idol otto von bismarck the iron chancellor the man who has unified germany in 1870, and has put together a peculiar form of government. It's a government in which neither the parliament nor the king actually exercises real authority over the imperial bureaucracy. The bureaucracy basically does what it wants to do, and it does so in the name of national welfare, of, uh, of, uh, of strengthening the state.
0: In the field of politics and political movements, How did the socialist movement first become implanted in Japanese political life and what particular challenges did that movement face?
1: Socialism in Japan has, in some sense, an independent history from the history of Marxism. That marks it out not necessarily as unique around the world because, of course, socialism predates the existence of Marxism as a political doctrine and predates the literal uh, life of Marx in some sense. Uh, But in Japan, it has to be said that there were a a, a number of sources for this. Marx was not widely read in Japan until the late uh, 19th century. Um, In that sense, Marx started to be read, for instance, in the 1890s, and came really to to intellectual prominence in the 1910s, uh, in the so-called Taisho period in, in Japan. This is when Marxism's intellectual hegemony was established. But prior to that, there was a separate trajectory of socialism, some of which came from Christian socialism. There was a prominence of Christian socialism in the last days of the Tokugawa feudal system. And there was an articulation of that sort of agrarian, millenarian, Christian socialism with uh, many of the peasant movements of late feudalism. It has to be remembered that one of the motor forces for the development of the modern Japanese state was the intense agrarian struggle that existed at the end of the Tokugawa system of, of provincial uh, city-states, and uh, that came um, usually in the form of peasant revolts. Uh, these peasant revolts increased radically in number between 1850 and the early 1860s, leading up to the major restoration of, of 1868. And after the restoration, a number of social movements that so to speak channeled that energy, of that popular energy of, of, of dissent, began to emerge, particularly in the early 1870s. So I think in particular in 1873 of the so-called Freedom and Popular Rights Movement, the Jiuminkendo, which was a kind of millenarian, we might say, movement for the uh, establishment of greater rights and popular freedoms for the popular classes. The Meiji state having uh, broken the feudal power was by no means a progressive state at the level of social policy uh, quite to the contrary we might even say that in the early meiji period after the establishment of the modern state there was uh, in some sense a significant uh, a significantly greater hardship visited upon the peasantry than even at the end of the feudal system so the freedom and popular rights movement of the 1870s spurred on the development in the 1880s and 90s of this articulation between a sort of Christian socialism, peasant movements, and a kind of nativist, agrarian, almost anarcho-syndicalism that would be really embodied by figures like the famous anarchist Kotok Shisui and figures like this. The challenges that this movement faced were very significant. They uh, were uh, largely banned and outlawed very quickly. But successfully planted the seed throughout, in particular, uh, the intellectual world and throughout workers' organisations of what would become slowly over the Taisho period and early Showa period, a renewed militancy on the part of of organised labour.
0: How did Japanese Marxism begin to take shape as a school of thought with original perspectives of its own? How did the early Marxist thinkers in Japan make sense of their own country? And what adaptations did they find necessary for theories that had originally been developed in a European or perhaps an American context?
1: Yeah, this is uh, probably the, uh, refers back in a sense to uh, your previous question about the development of Japan's social and political structures, whether they came from a pre-capitalist social basis or from the establishment uh, of of early capitalism. And in this sense, the key debate and development on this question took place in the 1920s. Um, The Japan Communist Party was founded in 1922 and very quickly became a sort of central nodal point of intellectual activity. Um, Around this time, what became the key debate uh, in uh, Japanese social thought, really uh, uh, in total, was called the debate on Japanese capitalism, Nihon shugi ronso And this debate was essentially a debate between two positions. One position, historiographically, that supported the thesis that Japanese capitalism was immature and incomplete. On the basis of only a partial transition from feudal social forms. Uh, for this, for instance, uh, defenders of this thesis would point to the notion that the labor wage rate was significantly below that of other uh, capitalist societies um, and would infer from that, for instance, that. Other ideological factors, namely uh, despotic power in the countryside, the transformation of former feudal lords into property-owning landlords, uh, despotic uh, tenant farm practices, uh, the extraction of uh, ground rent for, uh, at, for instance, strange intervals, more or less uh, agrarian despotism uh, would explain this low labor wage rate. Uh, On the other hand of uh, this uh, debate was a so-called Rono faction or labor farmer faction who would later go on to form effectively the Socialist Party in the post-war period who argued that Japanese capitalism was in fact a normally developing capitalism. They, They had a very normative understanding of what capitalism sort of ought to be and that Japanese capitalism had been comprehensively established with a full break from feudalism with the advent of the Meiji Restoration, and that this break uh, constituted a fundamental historical transition from feudal social and political forms. In other words, if such forms still existed in the political conjuncture, they were understood as inevitably uh dying vestigial and soon to fall away. So what's significant about this debate is that it both placed into the center of the development of Japanese Marxism, the clarification of what use Marx's theoretical work could be in the concrete political analysis of Japanese capitalism. Uh, it placed that question in the center But it also involved a sort of allegorical retelling of political questions in the sense that, unsurprisingly, the feudal thesis, the thesis that Japan was still overwhelmed with feudal remnants, took a specific political line, which would later become the line of the common turn in Japan, that Japanese capitalism was not ripe for socialist revolution, but first required a two-stage Revolutionary process involving a completion of the bourgeois democratic revolution, which would be principally anti emperor system in its character. The other side, the Rono faction, who asserted that Japanese capitalism already constituted a form of mature uh, capitalist social formation, had a one stage theory of revolution, the immediate passage to socialist demands. This mirrors very closely. The development of, of similar debates uh, in uh, particularly Africa and in Latin America, unsurprisingly everywhere outside Europe and North America, uh, Europe, North America never having had feudalism, properly speaking, except perhaps in New France, and Europe having had a transition from feudalism at a sort of earlier stage, so to speak, at least in England and France, This debate and its allegorical representation in two political lines, one two-stage, one one one-stage revolutionary process, was highly significant and essentially created the main trends of Japanese uh, Marxist theory.
0: What was the experience of the Japanese Communist Party after its foundation in the 1920s? And what relationship did it have to the intellectual development of Marxism in Japan?
1: Well, the experience of the Japanese Communist Party was a very significant one, and in in some sense it continues to be so. The party was formed in 1922 and immediately went through a very, very intense period of political and intellectual splits, exemplified, for instance, by uh, figures like uh, Fukumoto Kazuo, whose thought was quite close to Lukács, Uh, History and Class Consciousness, for instance, was published in 1923, I believe, and was almost immediately taken up in Japan by figures like Fukumoto involved in the foundation of the party. This sort of highly intellectualized vision of the party had major consequences in the 1920s. Fukumoto's line didn't win out in the end, but it made the party a very, very important sort of site for intellectuals. The party, however, was cracked down on very early. So it, by formed in 1922, it was banned in 1925 under the fascist peace preservation law. And thereafter, the party was essentially a, a semi-underground organization. But many, many figures in intellectual life and in political life belonged to the party, were at least adjacent to it. And in a sense... The party was one that took a stance early on on this previous debate, the debate on Japanese capitalism. The party was deeply influenced by the Comintern, clearly. And at this stage, there are a series of specific figures in uh, the Comintern as a whole who would be occupied with Japan policy, one of whom was Bukharin, actually, and uh, one of whom was uh, the Finnish communist Otto Kushinen who was the head of the Comintern's Eastern Bureau during the late 1920s and, and early 30s, and who wrote many of the position papers on Japan. One of the things that the Japanese Communist Party did that was very significant was it attacked principally the emperor system. What's significant about this is that it was for this that they were banned not for being communists, not for proposing an end to capitalist society, not for proposing a transition to socialism. In fact, there was a relatively free intellectual culture through the 1920s, despite the fact of a government that was prosecuting imperialism all over uh, East Asia, that was uh, increasingly open to a sort of uh, process of of fascist transformation. Um, There was quite an open culture. Uh, of intellectual life in the 1920s. And it was absolutely possible to write about Marx, to read Marx, to propose uh, communist solutions to uh, economic questions. What characterized the extreme force with which the Japanese Communist Party was attacked in the pre-war period was its insistence that the emperor system was the sort of theoretical and political lodestone of the social order and that without a frontal attack and destruction of the emperor system, uh, there was no possibility for a communist development. So this element of the JCP uh, would become very, very important and would become also a a sort of um, an element of its post-war legitimacy, so to speak.
0: How did the Japanese communists respond to the new situation that arose after the defeat of Japan in 1945 and the inauguration of a new political system that was under US hegemony?
1: The JCP changed significantly for two reasons. Number one, as of the mid-1930s and the genuine transition to fascism in Japan without entering deeply into the debates around the historiography of global fascism, whether Japan qualifies and so forth. Um, after the mid 1930s, uh, the JCP was not just uh, outlawed, but was hunted down and destroyed. The JCP faced an extraordinary level of political Uh, repression by the state in the 1930s, Uh, extrajudicial killings, long prison sentences for uh, trumped up offenses, uh, and so forth. So the main leaders of the JCP through the 1930s and 40s, that is through the high point of Japanese fascism and into the Pacific War and into the defeat in World War II, etc., were in prison during this time. When they emerged in 1945 after the defeat of Japan and the surrender of, of uh, the emperor in August 1945, the JCP emerged essentially not just unscathed, but almost with a remarkable degree of popularity, uh, despite the, the years of repression. A lot of this had to do not just with the fact that the JCP legitimately could say we are the sole political force who did not collaborate with the previous system. And they could certainly uh, declare that, but also even amongst people who were not sympathetic to uh, the JCP's particular political ideology, to communism, to socialism, to Marxism, uh, there was a significant uh, section of the population, especially the working population who saw them as A new possibility politically in a moment when the Japanese state had been devastated by warfare. And uh, it wasn't only the perspective that said, you know, uh, these people were prosecuted by the previous order, but also a perspective that said, Uh, the previous order led us to destruction. Therefore, we should have listened to those voices which saw early on the destructive force of the fascist order. So the Japanese Communist Party had a remarkable uh, opportunity. In
0: 1946, an American newsreel reported on the first post-war elections in Japan.
2: Park, a few days before the voting, a crowd of 10,000 listens to left-wing speakers who are opposed to the conservative Japanese cabinet. They tell the people that the government, led by Premier Baron Shidahara, is not democratic enough to carry out General MacArthur's program of reform. They call for a protest march on Shidahara's residence, and the crowd breaks into an angry chant. The march begins. Left-wingers, union leaders, and Koreans are predominant in the group. At the gates of the Premier's home, Japanese police try vainly to force the crowd back. American military police later restored order.
1: The U.S. occupation of Japan is itself a very interesting and in some sense rather strange Phenomenon. Policy was essentially made by, uh, in many cases, very very young people, people who were graduate students at Columbia and Harvard, and early policy under the U.S. occupation emphasized the sort of defascization of. Japan, Uh, the elimination of the remnants of the fascist order from institutions, the repurposing of previous uh, fascist elements of government for a new, so to speak, democratic order. But in 1947 and 48, uh, there was the possibility that the Japanese Communist Party and the Japanese Socialist Party would run on uh, a joint ticket for elections on the left. And polling showed that not only would this be a success, it could be a complete success, uh, enough to perhaps even form uh, a genuine political uh, force in government, perhaps even uh, um, become uh, the sort of majority party. Um, And this, of course, was totally unacceptable to uh, Douglas MacArthur, who was the head of the Supreme Command of Allied Powers uh, at the time, who saw this sort of uh, in the lens of the early developing Cold War. Uh, He saw this and uh, SCAP's commanders in general saw this as the uh, possibility that Japan would go red, so to speak. So this inaugurated what came to be known as the reverse course among historians, where up until this point, there had been a sense that the American occupation was going to participate in the defascization of Japanese society. Now, the new modus operandi of the U.S. occupation was instead to maintain Japan as a bulwark against communism. Um, We also have to remember that by 47, 48, it was very clear that on the Asian continent, the Chinese Communist Party struggling for 10, 15 years in conditions of civil war was on the verge of victory, uh, which would come to pass in 1949. So the moment was a very volatile one in, in geopolitical terms. And at that stage, the U.S. occupation's choice to privilege anti-communism over defascization really set the stage for what would happen in post-war Japan, not only in terms of the side of the state, but also in terms uh, of the JCP and its and what would happen thereafter.
2: Communist rioters in Tokyo turn May Day into a nightmare as fanatical speakers whip 400,000 workers and students into hysteria with anti-American speeches.
0: As the Cold War intensified, Britain's Pathé News carried a hostile report on left-wing protests in 1952.
2: Excited crowds carry signs praising Stalin and Chinese and Korean Red leaders. The mob moves off towards Hirohito's Imperial Palace in defiance of a police order. They're chanting anti-U.S. and anti-government slogans incited by well-trained communist
1: leaders. Thereafter, really, uh, to cut a long story short, the JCP had a brief turn to uh, really more or less sort of illegal modes of struggle. Um, And in the early 1950s uh, went uh, in part underground. That underground experience of the JCP in the early 1950s produced really remarkable political, uh, cultural, uh, even literary and artistic effects. Uh, It was a very uh, influential period, but was repudiated by the JCP's turn to uh, a sort of return to government in 1955 when the JCP declared an end to any sort of attempts at direct methods of armed struggle and an acceptance of the parliamentary road.
0: In the 1960s, despite or perhaps because of the extraordinary economic boom at the time, Japan developed one of the most significant new left movements. It was easily on a par in terms of social and political weight with the movements in Western Europe at the same time. What common ground did it share with those European movements and how did it differ from them?
1: the japanese new left uh shared in some sense a common pathway of development as the new left in europe and north america for a number of reasons uh, number 1 the effects of the 1950s on the global communist movement were significant when i say that i think of uh the hungarian uprising in 1956 and its crushing Uh, We also think of the secret speech, so-called, of Khrushchev uh, at the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, at which the crimes of Stalin, the existence of the Gulag and so forth were globally revealed and at least revealed within um, the, the global communist parties. As we know, this had a very intense uh, effect on uh, british communism uh, it was uh, the moment of essentially the creation of of, of the new left and a uh, certain exodus from the british communist party uh the same thing can be said uh in many places in france uh, from uh, the pcf uh, and so forth so in the 1950s this 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 effect of uh the revelations about the nature of the Soviet Union, about the pitfalls of the Soviet model of communism um, had a significant effect on creating a left that was independent of the JCP with its particular deeply common turn uh, driven and uh, deeply Stalinist orientation. Um, but as I just mentioned also, there was a significant uh, impact uh, just before 1956, 57, 58, and that sort of epochal moment for global communism. And that was, as I said, the repudiation by the JCP of this sort of underground experience of direct action in the early 1950s. The repudiation of the line of armed struggle by the JCP at the 6th Congress of the party in 1955, and its condemnation of those who went, for instance, into the villages in these peculiar things called the Mountain and Village Operations Corps, which were these these student groups that sort of went into the rural villages, the poor and sort of desolate rural villages, to essentially attempt to spark revolution. The JCP's repudiation of this experience, which was very formative for a whole youth generation, as simply ultra-left adventurism but was taken by many young people as a genuine betrayal and as a sign that the Japanese Communist Party no longer was the front sort of vanguard of revolutionary politics that sought to genuinely overturn the uh, existing order or that sought a truly insurrectionary and emancipatory political solutions. So, From that moment of 55, there was already a kind of nascent new left forming. And what really concretized that new left before 68 was the experience in 1959-60 of the renewal of the U.S.-Japan Joint Security Treaty, essentially the governmental pact that kept the U.S. military in Japan and kept Japan subordinate to uh, the U.S. military uh, force.
2: This treaty represents the fulfilment of the goal to establish an indestructible partnership between our two countries.
0: U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower celebrated the treaty with Japan as a triumph for American diplomacy.
2: The treaty likewise reflects
1: the closeness and breadth of our relations in the political and economic, as well as security fields. There was a mass uprising against this, and the student movement of 1959-60, the so-called Ampo, uh, named after this, this treaty movement, brought uh, an extraordinary numbers onto the streets. Uh, in many cases, in, in simultaneous uh, demonstrations around Japan, uh, we're talking about uh, as many as 7 million people in in some of the daily demonstrations um, and that's not in one place that's in uh, across the nation but nevertheless uh, 7 million is a remarkable number of people to mobilize in uh, the 1950s in uh, Japan in the social conditions it was in so that period of 1959-60 created a sort of first student movement that gave kind of student power a genuine um, popular and national edge and when In 1967, 68, 69, the sort of second largest uh, uh, student movement really uh, reached its peak in Japan. There was a kind of popular undercurrent that had already been formed in the Japanese case.
0: One of the high points of the Japanese new left was the long-running protest campaign against the expansion of Tokyo Airport which brought together Marxist students with local farmers. The violent clashes with riot police inspired a short documentary film narrated by the actor Vincent Price, better known from his many appearances in horror movies. Price seemed to find the whole thing perplexing.
2: In Japan, the streets become cauldrons of fire as rioters toss gasoline bombs at the police. How many causes are truly worth the violence
1: and death they generate? Men have pondered this question throughout history. So, obviously, there was a global simultaneity of political uh, questions, particularly the opposition to U.S. imperialism, the anti-war movement, and so forth that was shared globally. But the Japanese new left was not in any way an imitation of the new left in France, in Germany, in the United States, uh, and so forth. It was something that had its own local trajectory of development, but that was, of course, globally articulated to uh, this broader moment of of upheaval.
0: Coming into the 1970s, the JCP had a reputation for being rather close to the Eurocommunist current that was developing in countries like Italy and Spain. Would you say that reputation was well-deserved, or do you think the Japanese party had a particular orientation of its own?
1: This is a very interesting question because the Japan Communist Party, for people on the left around the world, continues to be seen as a kind of remarkable oddity in the sense that it remains today a party with a genuinely mass membership. For a party which is unapologetically in the tradition of the large communist parties, the actual dues-paying membership of the party remains something in the order of, of 300 350,000 members, which is truly remarkable and, you know, not uh common certainly in europe or north america it's unthinkable that the you know for instance the u.s communist party must have you know if it has 30 dues-paying members it could be remarkable at this stage i would say that what distinguished the japanese communist party in the 1970s was the long-standing leadership of its major uh, figure uh miyamoto kenji who who was in charge of the party for a very pivotal period uh, from 1958 through into the early 1980s. And it's sort of that period that was coextensive with the the high point of Eurocommunism in Spain, in the Italian Party, uh, to some extent in the French Party as well. Um, But one thing that's quite different about this period, and it's a little bit more complex, is... That Miyamoto, for instance, quite heavily criticized the Italian party's, for instance, Eurocommunist turn, by suggesting that it was a betrayal of the social democratic and organizational foundations of communism. And this argument was, in one sense, an attempt to preserve the traditional structure of the party but in another sense it it also had to do with the political economy of Japan at the time so if eurocommunism in uh, europe in particular in 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 italy spain and so forth was focused on sort of kind of realistic communism, as it were, demands for the expansion of workers' rights, uh, the notions of the uh, emphasis on um, pockets of communist control within state institutions, for example. This was sort of undercut in Japan in a peculiar way by the Liberal Democratic Party, the main conservative party that has more or less ruled Japan in almost unbroken fashion since 1945, um, because the LDP in the 1970s pursued a very interesting sort of double strategy. On the one hand, we can trace to that period the beginnings of what we would now think of as neoliberalism. In Japan, but we can also trace to that period a kind of deepening of welfare state institutions by the LDP itself. In a peculiar way, Eurocommunism and the Eurocommunist wing that was sympathetic to Eurocommunism in the JCP lost not just because uh, there they did not have have sort of ideological hegemony in the party, but also because. At the time, the Japanese state itself was taking a turn towards sort of policies of popular equality. And this was a very complex thing for the JCP and in retrospect, in fact, for the left in general to deal with, because there was a sort of turn, in fact, by the by by rather conservative forces in Japan towards a system of greater social equality at uh, the governmental level. And I think that that, as a result, made Eurocommunism, it's sort of in a way that the structural reform that the system itself was doing uh, outflanked Eurocommunism within the JCP. Um, the JCP, through the 70s, was very uh, successful in a sense at maintaining its organizational culture a deeply Stalinist kind of uh, democratically centralist uh, and all the rest um, uh, internal culture. But it it maintained this, this very difficult position throughout the 70s in conditions of really mass enrichment. It maintained insurrectionary elements inside it. And I think we can't under- underestimate that. There is a tendency to look at the history of the JCP and similar parties uh, from the critique brought by the new left that said these parties are uh, irretrievably uh, Stalinist, but also bureaucratic and so forth. But what made the JCP have this organizational culture that persisted was precisely that still internally, it did uphold uh, genuinely insurrectionary and emancipatory positions, the seizure of state power, uh by military means uh, eventually um it, it 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 had this utopian quality also and i think that that in a sense when we look to the jcp and we look to uh its comparison with the italian spanish french parties etc who of course in the case of the italian party were possibly more influential than the jcp in society as a whole i mean the italian party was Practically, a, a, an alternate state in parts of parts of Italy. The JCP never had that degree of popular uh, control or, or cultural hegemony. But because the JCP's sort of internal culture had this strange persistence of emancipatory elements and uh, rigidity, it sort of managed to persist through the Euro-Communist period without falling apart on the other end. And that actually, uncomfortably, is possibly due to Japanese conservatives making these kind of welfare state reforms that kept the Japanese state in a relatively stable space of relative equality when compared to the advanced capitalist countries uh,
0: around it. One of the most famous products of Japan's left-wing subculture in recent decades was the great animator Hayao Miyazaki. Miyazaki is a staunch opponent of militarism in Japanese politics who refused to attend the Academy awards in protest against the invasion of Iraq.
2: Airplanes are not tools for war. They are not for making money. Airplanes are beautiful dreams. Engineers turn dreams into reality.
0: Japanese conservatives denounced his last film, The Wind Rises, accusing Miyazaki of being anti-Japanese. The music we're listening to comes from the soundtrack to Miyazaki's first film for Studio Ghibli, Laputa, Castle in the Sky. It goes with a scene when the main characters visit a mining village. According to Miyazaki, the miners in the film Were inspired by his experience of witnessing the miners' strike in Britain in 1984. I admired those men. I admired the way they battled to save their way of life, just as the coal miners in Japan did. Many people of my generation see the miners as a symbol—a dying breed of fighting men. Now they are gone. How did the general retreat of the international left in the 1980s and 90s affect Japanese Marxism? Did Marxism begin to lose its currency among intellectuals in a similar fashion?
1: It did, very much. And I think today, in some sense, the events of 89, 90, 91 are as much of a sort of historical break as we often uh, previously thought 1968 to be. Oftentimes we speak in this sort of pre-68 and post-68 vocabulary, but we probably ought to also speak in a kind of pre-89 and post-89 vocabulary. Um, I think the the retreat of Japanese Marxism began earlier. It began at the end of the long 1968, and it began with this complex moment of 1972-1973. When, on the one hand, many of the post 68 armed struggle organizations devolved into really a remarkable level of internal violence and self destruction, which, of course, was something that that turned off the general public in, in a very comprehensive way, particularly in the way it was mediatized. But also, 1973, 1974, constituted a defeat for the labor movement. And this is a global story, of course, that relates to the uh, early 70s oil shock and beginnings of of neoliberal social policy in the sense of breaking the power of the existing trade union movement in Japan. So Marxism had certainly a high point in the 60s in Japan. And after the 70s became much more academic again. Now, that didn't mean a significant retreat of Marxism from the intellectual landscape. I would say still through the 70s and 80s, Marxism was uh, the dominant even kind of theoretical mode, according to which uh, a great deal of of intellectual work in the university in history and literary studies in political economy was done. After 1989, 1990, something very significant in Japan took place. And that was, you know, the burst of what had been this asset price bubble, this real estate speculation bubble in Japan in the early 1990s. That coupled with the loss of the sort of Soviet bulwark, the the notion still upheld by the JCP that Japan was part of a global trajectory towards socialism, which even if imperfect had its its bulwark in the world. The implosion of the official socialism alongside uh, the essentially implosion of the Japanese post-war economic miracle caused a a genuine sense, I think, that Marx had come to be uh, a figure of the old post-war world, and that now a new post-post-war had begun. However, I think that there were really significant things that took place within Marxism in Japan after the 1990s. One of them was uh, the work of figures like the now well-known in English, uh, Katatani Kojin, who uh, really began an intense round of publication then. Marxism took on, in some ways, more academic character at this point, uh, similar to the same case in, in English uh, or in other European languages. But one thing that was uh, true in Japan, I think, was that Marxism largely lost a clear connection to political movements. Of course, the JCP persisted. Of course, various political sects from the 60s and 70s persisted. But the overall direction of Marxist analysis in the university ceased to have a direct political connection through the 1990s and early 2000s, I would say. That certainly is, is something very different from the 1960s, when if you look through the major figures of Marxist theory in Japan, the majority of them had some connection to concrete socialist politics.
0: To what extent does Marxism still survive in Japan today, whether as an intellectual tradition or as a political force?
1: I think that Marxism survives in Japan today, as it survives everywhere, because Marxism remains, in some sense, uh, the sort of, you know, in Sartre's terms, the unsurpassable philosophy of our time. But uh, certainly in the Japanese case, I would say Marxism survives not only in in small pockets of of society, but In concrete institutions, uh, as I said, the JCP persists in having a mass social basis, I mean a genuinely mass party basis, and that is, it has to be said, that is a significant uh, political trajectory in Japan. Uh, I would say that in intellectual life, Marxism certainly survives, but is nowhere near the kind of hegemonic force that it was Through especially the mid 20th century. It can't be underestimated the degree to which Marxism was such a dominant force in the university and in intellectual life in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Today, nothing like that persists, and certainly the figures of Marxism in Japan who persist are no longer the sort of dominant intellectual figures that uh, we had in the 1950s and 60s, figures like Uno Kozo or figures like Hiro Wataru. These sorts of figures are not really there anymore. But there is also a renewed interest in Marxism in Japan, and I think that that's a sort of global phenomenon that we've seen, and of course, of which Jacobin is is part, in the last 10 years. Uh, so since really the mid to late 2000s. And in some part, I think that that is a significant experience in Japan that mirrors those in Europe and North America. And I can't help but think that it's, it's, it's something very closely connected to your previous question about the epochal moment of 1989 and 1990, 1991, uh, when you have a generation of young socialists who don't remember the Soviet Union fundamentally, there's, on the one hand, a kind of loss of genealogy, a loss of intellectual tradition, a loss of connection to a great trajectory of, of victory, for instance, but at the at the same time, there's also a remarkable freeing that comes from that, a sort of freedom from a need to see one's Marxism in one's own time as an inheritance of the Soviet system, or as a response to it even. In fact, it's simply untethered from it now. And I think that that element in Japan has a, a significant potential. I think Japan shares with the other OECD countries – an emptying out of the working class, a destruction of the post-war Japanese uh, miracle founded on this triangulation of corporation, state, and family that ensured a certain type of, of welfare. I think today, Japanese young people no longer believe in capitalism as the guaranteed system which will bring them prosperity and livelihood or even means of subsistence. And I think that that uh, has a great potential to produce a significant new generation of Marxists in Japan. Having said that, Marxism intellectually is in a genuine retreat. And I think that the pockets of Marxist theory that persist in Japan, while important, are no longer hegemonic. And that means that it's all the more important, I think, for this generation in Japan, but also internationally for us to really learn from the Marxist theoretical work that was done. And I would say, which was probably the repository on Earth most significant after English, French and German, of uh, and possibly Russian of Marxist theoretical writing I think it, it's for us to try to learn from, from that and uh, in an international sort of connection with new young socialists in Japan of whom there are many
0: Many thanks to Gavin Walker for that fascinating account of Marxism and left-wing politics in Japan Gavin has written for Jacobin recently about the political afterlives of Japanese novelist Yukio Mishima, and he'll be writing for us again about the history of Japanese Marxism this year. His new collection, The Red Years, is also a valuable guide to the politics and legacy of Japan's new left.